it's really summed me up. I'm an old development practitioner. I'm not an academic. Uh, I'm a, actually a practitioner researcher for the last sort of 10 years, more or less. And uh, it was only last week that I met Annette. And uh, it was only two days after meeting that she sent me a, an invite saying, we've got a space, could you come and talk? Uh, when I accepted, I thought, oh, that'll be, you know, that's not so difficult. I, I've probably already sort of got something that I can share with you. But actually, I didn't finish this presentation until about two minutes ago, because <laughs> I realised as I was preparing that what you're interested in, the changing character of conflict, was something that I really needed to... Uh, adjust my thinking around um, for you. So I'm, this is an experiment. Let's see how we go. I'm, I'm going to be sharing findings from uh, three studies that uh, I've led on. Um, and what I'm hoping will come from today, from this session, is a sort of maybe a, a greater understanding or a deeper uh, excitement around how comprehending uh, sort of male and female gender relations, identities, uh, gender ideologies can really shed light on what you're trying to, to learn about and look at and examine. Uh, I believe it can. <laughs> I hope that you'll uh, see um, that too at the end of this if you don't already. Um, oh, just going back to this one, I, I put this picture up here. I've used quite a few photos in this presentation. I don't know if that's allowed in an academic setting, but anyway. <laughs> um, this is a picture from Somalia in the late 1970s, and these women are all um, police women. I put it there because not many people, it seems, un sort of know very much about the, the pre-1991 history of Somalia, and I am going to be talking a bit about that today because I am an old person, and... Um, I was actually there before the war, so may as well make use of it. So just to introduce you briefly to the three <coughs> studies, um, they're all qualitative studies, and Katrina and I had a nice conversation over our breakfast about quantitative, qualitative research. My work is always pretty much on the qualitative side, particularly using life stories and uh, semi-structured interviews, if I can get them, sometimes focus groups. And I work with Somali researchers or whoever are local researchers. So it's not me going out there doing all the interviews. I might do some if I can do them in English. But usually uh, I'm working with a, local t a team of local researchers. Um, so uh, there are three studies. The first one, you can find these on. I'll give you the, the links if you're interested. It's called The Impact of War on Men, on Somali Men. Um, and that was undertaken with the Rift Valley Institute. Actually, I'm not part of the Rift Valley Institute. I'm associated with them, uh, but I'm an independent researcher, and I do do a lot of work with them, um, and they've sort of been keen for me to come to this. Uh, the second study is uh, it's called Women, Conflict and Peace, Learning from Kismayo. Could you mind just showing me if you're sort of very familiar with Somalia? I mean, does anyone here sort of specialise on Somalia? Yeah? Are you the only one? That's <laughs> Michelle, of course. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Okay, so... you my best job working Yeah, it's so nice to see Michelle here. Um, okay, so I might just give you a little bit of background about that one. This study was undertaken with the Life and Peace Institute primarily and their local partner, Somali Women's Solidarity Organisation. Peace Direct funded it. Um, we wanted in this study to really find out, it was a, it was a case study in one context, one small place, well, Kismayo, it's not so small, one place, and we wanted here to learn about what do women do in conflict, what are their roles in conflict, because uh, Life and Peace are a peace-building organisation, and they wanted to uh, really find new avenues for bringing women on board in their, their peace-building. It threw, threw up many, many other findings as well. And then lastly, and I've not highlighted it in the same way because this is a study that isn't yet published and I'm really not supposed to be even talking about it, but I actually feel very um, sure that it's relevant <laughs> to what you're interested in and I'm desperately keen for it to be published. Uh, it's a study of women, girls and al-Shabaab, women, girls <coughs> experiences al-Shabaab. And it was research that we did in uh, Somalia, in Somaliland and in uh, Wajir in the north east of Kenya. 
publication pending, and I can't say any more about it, but uh, we'll have Chatham House rules when I do talk about that, <laughs> that part. Okay, so those are the three studies. Um, there is a fourth one, which I haven't put up there, but I suppose it informs everything that I do these days, and it's an earlier piece of work that I did um, with Judy Elbushra, who, the late Judy Elbushra, I don't know, if, apart from Michelle, how many of you knew Judy? Um, but it was a study of the impact of war on Somali women. Uh, and this was done with, with Somali women. It was a collaborative um, thing. And it's written up in a, a book, which is uh, still available. It's called Somalia, the Untold Story, The War Through the Eyes of Somali Women. And I mention that because all of the rest of these things have come from that initial study. We worked with um, a group of women who were sharing their experiences and impacts during the 1990s about the war. And one of the things that they said to us was, our lives as women will never recover until the, men, uh, the lives of our menfolk recover. Uh, and that sort of lodged in my mind. We didn't at the time really explore it, but it lodged in my mind and Judy's mind. And it wasn't until really more than 15 years later we were able to get funding to do this follow-on study to actually try to find out what it was that women were talking about. And I mention that because throughout this presentation, in fact, throughout all my work, when I talk about gender, I'm not talking about women and girls. I'm talking about the relationship between women between men and men, between women and men. Okay, so gender is a relational concept. And I think that, I mean, maybe that's how you also think about it, but we do sort of tend to operate in the world, in the development world, where gender means women and girls. Um, so there's always a struggle to sort of establish exactly what we mean. Now I want to share three observations that are, for me frame this presentation because I'm framing it for you and for this idea around the changing character of, of war and I'm um, taking these from a work that Judy did I don't know if any of you have seen it it's called why does armed conflict recur and what has gender got to do with it it's a brilliant paper it's not very long it was an LSE women peace and security paper it came out last year um, so she makes many observations in the paper and I just <coughs> picked out three so the first one I've really mentioned, you know, gender is a relational um, sense, and that gender is really deeply implicated in conflict uh, and in violence, uh, and the knock-on effects and beyond. And, and that's why it's valuable to, or, or essential, we might argue, to, to look at what's happening on the ground in terms of gender relations. Then she makes another observation which our findings really bear out, which is that transformation of gender relations can go either way. <laughs> There's no guarantee. And when we look at Somalia, it's a brilliant example of this. Um, you can think that you're changing gender relations in a positive way or that they are changing and that, or they can be pushed back. Um, and this, so it's very difficult to make a cause and effect. In fact, you can't really uh, establish or generalize about cause and effect. And then she also says... Um, that history shows that the roots of recurring conflict may be sought in the behaviour of past generations, uh, as well as in current structures. And I really do, more and more and more, I feel history is so important in, in terms of my work uh, and, and the people that I'm working with. Uh, and I think in my presentation we'll take some steps back into history. Um, she goes on to say underlying tensions and grievances often, often recur cyclically over decades, if not over centuries. The knowledge of violence can be transferred from one generation to another, and we see that in the Somali context, particularly through women. Women are a sort of vehicle for carrying this, um, uh, the knowledge of the past grievances. And it informs not only the fact of war, but also the intensity of the violence. And again, that, that really resonates with what we found. <coughs> I would say that um, I hadn't read these before we did the studies, so it's just a nice kind of validation of, of what Judy's um, saying. I just wanted, after talking with Katerina, I just wanted to add one more thing that Judy goes on to say, because I thought it was relevant to our earlier conversation. Um, she says, these insights undermine the presumption of orthodox conflict analysis. 
that conflict is to be measured in terms of battle deaths uh, and to be explained exclusively by the machinations of warlords and financiers whose elimination will herald a sustainable peace. I mean, that's certainly the reality in Somalia. That's kind of what drives a lot of the international policy making. That's why they're focused so much on the elites, on the, the people that they identify as the rulers, who are always male, that's who gets to be at the table every single time. Um, but of course, if we start to look down, and, and I hope this is what I'll show you today, what we see underneath all that is going on, and it's not going to be affected by the deaths of the warlords or whoever else or, or moving them on. It's still there. It's residual in the um, social fabric. And unless that's addressed, then it's uh, un unfinished business. Now, I just made a little timeline for you. I'm trying to sort of think. This is so, there's so much <coughs> I could say, <laughs> whether it would be interesting or not, I don't know. But I've tried to sort of um, divide up a, a sort of Somalia's history um, into these four stages. And I've got some pictures to go with this, just to share with you. So... Sort of thinking pre-colonial, colonial pastoral past, so up to about independence 1960. Um, there's a picture of pastoral women dancing. Um, I won't say a huge lot about that, but you'll find that when I refer to the nor <coughs> excuse me, the norms and expectations of men, they're coming from this colonial past. Okay. That's what we found when we talked to men and women today about what's expected of, of being a man. Then there's the modern Somalia, the Siabare era, sort of up to from 69 to, to 90. State collapse, and I'm, I think you'll probably find that I do really emphasise state collapse almost over and above the wars that have uh, affected Somalia because state collapse has been so catastrophic. Um, and the aftermath. And then, and this is my sort of artificial dividing up here, but I think others would agree that you could see very significant changes post 9-11, um, post-war on terrorism, or not post, but after the announcement, up to today. Well, I don't know if you like the the embodiment of that change <laughs> through the changing uh, uh, control, really, over women's bodies. I'm not going into that. You can do lots of things with photographs. I, want to be, I don't want to go on dodgy ground there. Um, okay, so first of all, then when I was thinking about this presentation, something came to my mind. I thought, I've got to begin by looking at the Somali context. I didn't know how much you'd know about it, and I don't want to overdo it because I'm not a geographer or a historian, but it seems to me that you're interested in changing character of war, but maybe in the Somalia case, we can see changing character of the Somali context uh, even more sharply. So I start, I've got three maps, and this is the first one, and this one comes from sort of pre that pre-independence time. And it shows, it's not a very great map, it's not very clear, but it sh this big area here shows the extent of the Somali nation of people, the Somali-speaking or the Somali ethnic um, peoples. And that was before the <coughs> borders, really. I mean, it has a border in there. But it was it's sort of the pre-colonial um, makeup of um, Somalia. I, I was thinking about, well, what were the stakes then? We don't hear about big wars then. We know that there were clan wars, um, but inter-clan wars or inter wars between neighbouring groups, perhaps, to be more precise. Um, for all I, my understanding, it, it, it's mostly around securing enlarged herds or securing grazing, water. It's very much sort of um, ecological and environmental based, um, about an equilibrium. So often when you talk to, to Somalis about that sort of pastoral past, it's, it's more about, rather than making conflict, it's about avoiding conflict or about mediating conflict. Um, so I'm going with that. I might be wrong, but I've not got any evidence to prove that it is wrong. But it's certainly, that seemed to be the stake at, at hand um, at that time. And there are mechanisms... Um, 
sort of gendered mechanisms, such as it, the importance of exogamous marriage, the, uh, the, the system of kinship organization, which I'll talk a bit more about in a little while, um, to manage resources, to manage the environment as well as the social structure. Then the second map, this isn't a perfect map because there are things missing, but this is uh, what that looked like after colonials had arrived. And you had the division between British Somaliland and Italian Somaliland. And it should also show you Djibouti being French Somaliland. And it should show you <coughs> this is sort of gone to Ethiopia, the Ogden. And down here, northeastern Kenya, Somalia was divided up into five um, pieces by the, um, the British, the French, and the Italians. Uh, and then I was thinking, well, what were the stakes then? You know, what, what was kind of going on at that point? And like I said, I'm not the historian, sorry. Um, but what, what's interesting about this, this time, if you know about Somalia today, it's the roots of the irredentism claims that have really um, driven the, the... In a way, it spoiled Somalia that Siabari was creating because... We had the Ogaden War, which ended up being quite a disaster for Somalia. It was all happening under the Cold War. But these, it was rooted in this time when the Somalis were divided up. Um, and then the last map that I found, which I thought was helpful, <coughs> is a map of today, Somalia today. Uh, and it shows how fragmented it is. It's divided now into five main federal states plus the Somaliland uh, state which is a se claiming secession and these red stars represent where there's live conflict where, or where Al-Shabaab is uh, remaining in control and in fact Al-Shabaab retains a lot of this southern area and there it seemed to me that the stakes or what it, what it sort of shows the stakes here seem to be more around um, state control of state resources uh, and, and that's definitely what we'll see um, happening in terms of how um, the, the, the battle, if you like, for, for wealth, for opportunities, it's through managing to capture and control what, what would be resources of the state. Um, now, I don't know if I've lost you on that, <laughs> but anyway, I think it's, it's an important um, reminder that there are roots right from the very beginning that, that are still resonating today in the Somali context on many, many levels. Um, so I just want to now go to Siabari's era because from a gender perspective, um, the Siabari period, so Siabari had a bloodless coup more or less, 1969, and he held Somalia under a dictatorship until 1990, December, well, actually January 91, more or less. Um, he operated in the Cold War period. He, was, he introduced scientific socialism to, to Somalia. And major changes were imposed through a sort of state-organized, state-driven system, and particular to the interest I have in, in gender, um, he banned kinship. He banned the, the, the whole idea of the clan, the tribalism, uh, and everything had to come through the state. And he did it in, in a very sophisticated sort of way. Um, so, for example, whereas before you would be dependent on your kinship group for welfare, for protection... <laughs> Now the state would provide you with uh, insurance if you needed it, if you got sick or you needed a funeral or a, ma or a marriage. It would all happen through, through the state. Um, and it became illegal to talk about clans. And I, I mean, I remember in 89 when I lived in Mogadishu, people didn't refer to the clan identity at all. I'm using talking about clans, assuming everybody knows what I'm talking about, but I, I will go into it in a bit more depth in a minute. So he really succeeded, in a way, <coughs> up to a point, in erasing, or burying, actually, more than erasing, because it re-emerges, in burying 
the most fundamental part about being Somali, uh, which was your dependence on your kinship group. Um, in terms of these are all boys, um, the reason I've used this photo is because under Siabari uh, scientific socialism, if you were born male, you had many more opportunities than if you were born into a pastoral system. Um, so he, he's sort of building the state opened up many, many opportunities for men and boys, and to an extent for girls too, and women, uh, but particularly for men. Uh, you could get employment, you didn't have to herd camels anymore, you could go and live in the urban area, you could become a driver, an artist, uh, a soldier, a mechanic, an engineer, an architect. There's a huge gamut, and the, the, the state employed thousands and thousands of people. I think I, it was something like 60,000 um, civil servants or public public servants. <coughs> um, this slide I've just put up here because I, I think it's very little understood or it's not often looked at what Siabari did for women um, or he tried to do for women. Um, under the scientific socialism, Somalia became the sort of foremost African country in terms of women's rights and uh, women's uh, equality. So he introduced family laws in 1974 and 78, which made women have equal rights in marriage, inheritance, divorce, etc. Why that's important for today's story is because it was so controversial at the time. He imposed it. And because there was protest by religious sheikhs, religious leaders, he had them executed. And their execution shocked to the, to the core Somalis. Uh, they couldn't believe that he would do that. And still today, when you talk to men of that generation, so they're in their 60s, 70s, some of them will still tell you that that's why Al-Shabaab is able to do what it's doing, because of what Siabari did in the name of women's equality. And they'll say, you know, we're never going to allow women to have those rights again because of what happened to those, to those men. So it's a critical point in history. It's one of those sort of um, recurrent things. Also, um, and, and people still, I mean, Siabara has a very bad reputation <laughs> among most people. But one of the things that most agree on is he introduced mass literacy and education. Um, and that had a huge impact at the time. There were, there were mass literacy campaigns during the early 70s. He did understand through his sort of science, scientific socialism the value and importance of having an educated um, population. Nevertheless, when I was there in 89, Somalia was still at the very bottom of the world's literacy stakes. And today, female literacy is about 17%. Um, even less, 6% in the rural areas. And male literacy is, is not much better. Um, so he, he introduced these things, but they didn't stick. Um, okay. Are you okay? <laughs> Are you sure? Am I galloping on? All right. Um, so now, moving on to state collapse. Okay, so 1991, January 1991. All of that architecture of the state disappeared overnight, completely overnight. There's, there was nothing left. There were no banks, there were no ministries, no law courts, no police, no health centres, no schools, nothing. Everything just collapsed in a space of three weeks. And as a, a consequence of that, I, I think what we found in our Impact of War on Men study is that State collapse in itself has, and it's still not, it's still not been reformed. I mean, we have a Somali government, but it's got no credibility. It doesn't actually control anything. It's uh, it's a construction from the international community and those that it collaborates with. It doesn't, it can't operate outside Mogadishu, but it's there in name only. So the actual state has never really ever been reconstructed with the exception of Somaliland and Puntland, which are, and I think I've missed saying that, but it's terribly important that 
there's a lot of difference depending on where you are in the Somali context as to how things are. But for the majority in the south and in southern Somalia, um, it remains without a functioning state. So the state collapse has had this massive impact and it's still being felt. So this is over 27 years later, I think. Um, so for women, and this is a desperate photograph, and I, I don't I don't think it's um, untypical of the time. This was in the very early uh, 91, 92. Um, for women, they lost, overnight, they lost everything in terms of legal support, protection, all their rights. Anything that had been given to them by the state was gone completely. Um, the, the men, too, lost it. But for women, it was a, a way bigger impact in terms of legislative rights. And... What re-emerged, and what everybody had to fall back on because there was nothing else, was the kinship system as the central organizing force. Kinship, or as we call it, clan. Um, and that had, in some ways, it had differing impacts depending on whether you were female or male. And I'll, I'll talk about for male. This is a picture of some elders, actually, in um, Galmaduk, I think, taken quite a few years ago. But I hope they look suitably dejected. <laughs> That's why I chose it. Um, because the study that we did, talking <coughs> to men and we talked to women as well to, to sort of verify it, um, showed that state collapse has been catastrophic for, for many, many men. Um, and one of the reasons was because they lost their livelihoods overnight. They lost assets overnight. They uh, no longer had any status, whereas somebody might have been a... Um, uh, they might have been an accountant for the government, they might have been in an office for the government, or a driver for the government, anything. But everything went, all of their, their jobs and employment. And we talk about urbanised men here. The rural men, um, life more or less probably stayed, stayed the same, but... We interviewed 440 men, and every one of them, if they were over 40, talked about um, their lives being irreparably damaged by, by state collapse. Um, they weren't, most of them haven't been able to regain what they feel they lost. And they've uh, sort of, you're probably familiar with the sort of stories of men being cat addicts or mentally ill and all the rest of it. A lot of the men that we spoke to referred to this huge blow that they incurred. And it was all the greater because if you're born male in Somali society, you have this expectation put on you that you are responsible, that you will provide for your family, that you will protect your family. And all these men couldn't do that. They lived under Siabari's era where the state provided and protected and they had absolutely no resources um, or resilience to, to do that. Um, but more, perhaps, more enduring, maybe, with the re-emergence of, of kinship as the central organising force, all men, and I, I always ask men if, if they're someone new to meet, I always want to check this with everyone, all men have their lives totally circumscribed by clan loyalty, clan membership. So even, um, and I'm, okay, I am making a generalization there because not everybody in the Somali context belongs to a clan. There are uh, minority groups as well which have very different or um, uh, modified systems. But say the majority but have a patrilineal clan identity. And I, I'm hesitating to even talk about clan identity. I, Katerina and I talked about this earlier. If there were Somalis in this room, I'm sure they'd be waving their hands at me saying, no, no, no don't, don't speak with such an Orientalist viewpoint and all the rest of it. So I'm using it tentatively. And um, I think, for me, what helps to think about clan is it's what Somalis like to think about. That's how they think in terms of clan identity, but it's not something that people will talk about openly, and they don't want to talk about it, and they definitely don't want to talk about it with foreigners unless they know you quite well. So, you know, 
this is in parentheses kind of thing. Um, but what we were hearing, and it was from young men, older men, middle men, from rich men, poor men, everybody. You, since state collapse, your only source of opportunity, protection, uh, uh, welfare <coughs> is through your kinship group, through your, your clansmen, basically, or your kinsmen. Uh, and you can't step outside that. You can't live in an area where they're not living because you're not safe. Uh, and you can't oppose them either. You have to comply. Compliance is a very important part about being male. Uh, there are leaders and there are followers. And uh, you need to be one of those. Otherwise, you're not, you're not fitting in. So for a young man, you know, I don't know how those guys that were sort of 15, 16 when state collapse happened, how they must feel. But since 91, if you're a youth, you, your adulthood may not kick in until you're 30, or even in some parts of Somalia, 35. All that time, you're, you're kept as a subordinate within the sort of community of men that you're part of. Um, and this is so different. On the Sierra Barry, by the time you were 18, you, could, you, know, you were considered adult. Um, so uh, male adulthood is delayed, and men have tried to stay. If they had a job, if they managed to get into some kind of new governance system that was being set up, they've held on to it. They haven't wanted to sort of retire and pass it on. So there's a, there's a really big issue around civil service um, uh, retirement packages and things that don't exist but should exist. We also found um, the inequality between men. I mean, between men and women, we expected and we found, but between men themselves, we saw that it has expanded with state collapse and with the wars. Uh, and this goes beyond the tr sort of traditional marginalized groups that live in Somalia, who were um, traditionally, customarily uh, excluded, marginalized, uh, unable to sort of access the same um, opportunities as. The, the men from majority clans, except on Sia Barry, which is interesting. Um, now, there's inequality around wealth, in particular, um, and your access to any kind <coughs> of resources. And if you don't have, uh, if you're from a, a small clan, for example, which doesn't have very many men in it, because clan size is all dependent on the number of men, that it has, then you've got less opportunity, <coughs> less access to opportunities. Um, powerful men can exploit uh, these divisions, and they are exploiting them, and they perpetuate male vulnerabilities, and I can talk about that. I'm conscious about the time. Um, I think, importantly, what we were hearing was that there's a new form of male hegemony um, and it's one that's based on wealth and control of resources. Whereas in the past, under the sort of pastoral system, you were an esteemed male. You were part of the sort of the, the male elite if you could demonstrate wisdom, you had a great knowledge of jurisprudence, if you were a good orator, uh, if you were a good clan mediator, if you were generous. All these uh, highly esteemed qualities, they're out. <laughs> they don't matter anything anymore, except they do inside people's heads. But what matters in terms of being able to gain power and control is, is to have access to wealth, which you may have got because you're a pirate. It may be that you've become a warlord. It may be that you've been a diaspora member who's gone back. And a lot of diaspora are young and they're in the government. Um, and they're able to exert... Uh, a lot of influence because they can get other men to support them because they can pay for them or they can give them access to jobs. Uh, so there's been a huge shift in terms of um, that sort of male uh, power. Okay, just, am I okay for time? I'm really, yeah. are you sure? Yeah, yeah. Okay, <laughs> all right, I'll whiz through this. I don't know if you want to, to know about this, but I think this is quite critical, really. Um, I've told you my reservations about even talking about the, the clan system, but I think you need to know, if we're talking about gender in the clan system, how it's gendered. So it's different if you're 
born female to if, to if you're born male in some very fundamental ways. Um, if you're born male, clan identity is patrilineal, so it's through your father. Sorry, this isn't clear, but it says male relatives through your mother. If you're born male, your only really strong relationships that you can trust and depend on are with your father's um, clansmen, your kinsmen. Yeah? That's, they're the only group who you belong to, who you can trust, who you can build things with, etc. You have connections with your mother's relatives, but they're very weak. And it's really mainly your mother and her brothers that you could sort of sometimes get uh, protection from, but it's not guaranteed. On the other hand, if you're female, you have multiple networks and multiple um, uh, points of relationships that, that you can benefit from. So you have the same, you have your paternal clan, you're very, that's your very strongest, that's who you identify the most with, but at the same time you're linked to your maternal clan, you could go to them. You're linked to your husband's clan because your children will belong to your husband's clan. So they're also people that you can reach out to, that you'll have a bond with. You can even uh, become connected to your son-in-law's clan. The, the main ones are paternal, the husband's and the maternal um, clans. But compared to a man, you have many more opportunities in terms of uh, relationships and protection, although your main protection will always be with your paternal clan, but you can still live in your husband's clan area during a conflict or, or in your mother's. Now, the reason I've put this up here is because, believe it or not, um, this really helps to understand so much about the state of inter- and intra-clan conflict in, Somali, in Somali society, how it comes about, uh, the, the agonies that it produces, the, 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 the terrible, uh, uh, appalling suffering that it creates at family level. Because if you imagine exogamous marriage is the preferred marriage. So girls are brought up in the expectation that they will marry the enemy. That's how it's described. Girls are, girls are kind of, they're valued, they're, they're loved and they're important, but they're not as important as boys because girls will <coughs> go to the enemy whereas the boys will stay and be numerically important in your clan. And they go to the enemy because that's the way to expand your, your group's uh, grazing. That, that was sort of the historical reasons for it. Um, so they, you know, they're, they're a very important political tool, if you like. Um, the wars that we've seen, or the, the very violent conflicts that we've seen, in, uh, particularly throughout southern Somalia, but also in Somaliland and Puntland, have, have been made worse because a woman's husband will be fighting her brothers, her father, her son will be possibly being killed by her brothers, by her father's relatives. It's, it's been at that level, it's inter-family um, conflicts. Um, it also means that why women are excluded from political settlements and from politics so fiercely by men is because men say, well, you can't trust a woman because politics is clan-based since 1991. Everything is decided according to numbers, quotas, 4.5 system. If you're a man, you know exactly who you're going to side with, who you'll vote with. It's always going to be your clan. You can be trusted. If you're a woman, who are you going to side with? Who will you be loyal to? Will it be your father's clan, your husband's clan, maybe your mother's clan? So men don't want to know about women coming into politics because they can't count on their votes. And it's all about numbers. So this is actually very important to understand, even if we don't sort of want to think too deeply or, or get too attached to, to, to clan as a kind of um, defining term. I'm almost at the end. Um, I've got two more slides, I think. Are you okay? Yeah. <laughs> Very patient. Um, sort of the last step, the last two steps. So we've had uh, Sierra Barry, 
state collapse and the aftermath of state building. A huge project of the international community since, not really since 91. I mean, I think anyone that's followed the history of Swanee knows that it's been very intermittent. It really kicked in after 9-11, and everybody was sort of panicked by the thought that Somalia was going to be a haven for terrorists. Um, so huge amounts of investment. I happen to be part of the Somalia Stability Fund and the Gender Social Inclusion Advisor, but I am wary of what the, you know, the whole concept that you can rebuild this state. I, I'm not sure myself how that will happen, and I don't see it <coughs> happening yet. Um, I've put here raising the stakes. And I think that refers back to those three maps. You know, what's at stake? Because of the way that state building has been pinned onto the idea of clan and clan composition and clan numbers and 4.5 system, if you can win it, you win everything. It's like the winner-takes-all approach, which is so different to how it was in the pastoral past. So these ideas that people are operating with today come from a completely different context from sort of, I don't know, 60 years ago and beyond when you're talking about sort of conflicts over camels and over a bit of grass and now it's over everything, it's over a port and you'll be aware of all the sort of transnational dimensions now to the Somali conflict with the Dubai and UAE and Qatar really sort of being playing around a lot and Ethiopia and Kenya you know, I mean, there's so much international interest um, at stake. It's a terrible photo, but this is an amazing photo. This is taken at the inauguration of the um, parliamentarians. I think it was the... Um, I don't think it was this last election. I think it was uh, Hassan Sheikh's election. But it's an amazing picture. It's taken by Amazon. And it's on the front cover of a paper that um, I'll give you the link to, which I wrote, which is called Somalia, a state of male power, male inequality, and male insecurity. It doesn't say male, but that's the implication. And I put it here because one of the, I think one of the, the, the real gaps in understanding or thinking in terms of the international policymakers and community in all of this they're really not looking on the ground at what's happening, what the realities are for men, or for women. <laughs> and I'll, I'll talk about that. Um, you know, men are the elite in Somalia. They are <coughs> holding the power in so many ways. But there are also such inequalities between men. Only, this time, 14,000 men got to vote. There's no universal suffrage yet in Somalia. Previous times, it's been about 1,000 men who got to choose the parliamentarians. This time, it was 14,025 or something. So it's, there's a huge inequality, but there's also massive insecurity. And I think that insecurity goes right back to the, the state collapse. So if you're male, you've been um, living in what I've described when I talked to Lynette, I think... It's correct to call it existential insecurity. I think that's the right term. It's the same for women, but they have different forms of insecurity. So if you're a man, you've not only been uh, a potential target in a sex-selective massacre, and those massacres have continued throughout. Um, we've collected testimony from mothers who've talked about hiding their children, dressing their boys as girls, uh, ways to losing their menfolk, you, you've been um, potentially, and you still are potentially subject to being forcibly recruited into armed groups, including Al-Shabaab, but it could be your clan militia, it could be another militia. And perhaps most pernicious of all is the re-emergence of revenge killing, which has um, not been researched, I have to say. I mean, nobody's really looking at it, and yet it's a very strong... Uh, determinant of male opportunities or a constraint on male opportunities and when we did our research we didn't expect it, we hadn't kind of thought about it I have to be honest but it was coming through from uh, many of the areas that we did our, our, our field work um, in fact one place that we visited, Las Anod when the researchers turned up there were no men visible uh, no young men visible in the, the whole town because they were under a revenge-killing um, 
feud, and they'd all been sent out to the rural areas to hide. Uh, the consequences of that for men, but also for women, who have to step in and uh, enter the public domain in order to fulfil the livelihood needs, etc., are tremendous. Men can't move between one space and another space freely. Um, they can't look for work in a different part of Somalia. They are trapped in the areas where they feel safest. Um, so that I think the the way that state building is being undertaken doesn't really it's not cognizant of these kind of um, details, and it, it's kind of focusing so much on the elites that. It forgets if you get rid of the elites, you're just going to get another load of elites. And this is all still happening on the ground. It's not going to go away. They need something quite different, a different approach. I don't have it before anybody asks me. I don't know what approach. Um, I do want to just say, yes, I wanted to bring in, okay, at this point, talking about insecurity. So I've talked, mentioned the male insecurity, the, the revenge killing. Of course, there's the female forms of insecurity too. And insecurity we've seen is so gendered, so different. Um, and you'll all be aware of all the international attention on sexual gender-based violence, rape, etc., that uh, has been thrown at the Somali context. And many Somalis are very sensitive about that. They feel it's overblown. But you know, there's no doubt that sexual gender-based violence is a, is a it was, it was a taboo before, but it's definitely um, out there in a big way. Um, I wanted to show you what we've learned in terms of um, if you're male, what's expected of you? There you go. Because trying to understand how you create that inter-clan or intra-clan conflict. What our, our research has shown is it's not easy to get men to go and fight each other. It's not easy to get a man to go and fight his uncle or kill his, his nephew or whatever. Because it seems manhood isn't predicated on violence in the Somali context. You're not esteemed if you're violent. You're not you're certainly disrespected if you're, you're found to be violent or oppressive <coughs> towards women or girls. It uh, doesn't mean it doesn't happen, but this is the sort of the normative, the social norms. Um, manhood is, is defined by people as a responsibility. In fact, some people, a lot of people said, you're responsible after Allah. You know, Allah is the ultimate, and then it's man. And your responsibilities are for your family and for your clan. And for those two... Uh, entities, you must do anything you can, which is where the violence comes in. Um, now, if you're female, what we've learned from the Life and Peace study is that women have a very important role, a critical role, in the construction of intra and interclan warfare. And it seems, and we're still validating this and doing extra studies, but it seems partly it's a response to vulnerability to violence. So women are seeking, they're trying to make men seek revenge, get dominance, claim clan supremacy, because that's the only way a woman can be protected in this stateless society, uh, if her clan is, is holding all the reins. So women are instrumental and they're instrumentalised and they have multiple roles in, in violence. And we've, we've documented these and I would urge you, if you're interested, to take a look. Um, I've got a list here that, I mean, they canvass for war, they promote it, they fundraise for it, they'll sell their house, their gold. Not all women, but these are the, 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 the majority in the places that we've studied. Um, they'll provide logistical support in the form of food and milk and water, even airtime, things like that. Um, most, perhaps most importantly, they mobilize men. And so they push their men to fight. They push their boys or their husbands to, to get out there. And we had some very graphic descriptions of how they do that, using humiliation, uh, taking off their clothes. These are not uh, exclusive to the Somali context. You'll find this in, in other uh, similar contexts. They ferment warfare. They'll, they'll use poetry. They'll use songs. Um, I've put here the 
custodians, or they seem to be. Now, this is something that I'm suggesting, and I, I, I'm not sure about it, but it seems that they, are, they play a role of holding on to grievances, remembering grievances, and bringing them up when they feel most vulnerable. Um, so they can be agents of clanism, custodians. And it seems to be that clanism is playing a very, very important part in the, the sort of concept of getting mobilization. It's being used by warlords, whatever, but it certainly it seems hugely important. We haven't done the research on it, though, so it's kind of tentative. Um, and definitely they seem essential in producing the violent masculinities because it's not there without them. We heard men say, you know, we need women. We need them on the battlefield to sing to us. <laughs> We're too afraid. You know, we can't stay there unless they're, they're singing us all. And I've just found this. This is a shilling, uh, a hundred shilling note. It's the currency from 1989 from Mogadishu. Um, and I'm not sure if you can see it very well, but this kind of image of a woman, a pastoral woman, because she's dressed in traditional pastoral dress, She's brandishing a rifle in one hand and a spade in the other. Yeah. Oh, I was just going to ask, so if women are sort of split between clans, maybe you just finish the presentation and then okay. go to the question. You can know ask which, which clan do they go for? I think I think we have time. Judith is about to finish. Yeah, I am very nearly finished, okay. but you can ask yeah, your question. That was the question. Is it? Yeah. We don't know, but we're told they always, it depends on where the fight is. So if it's with their family, I think her question was, do women side with their father's clan or with their mother's Especially clan? Especially like encouraging the violence. Yeah. It seems counterintuitive. They split their loyalties yeah. and split. Yeah, I totally agree with you. And we haven't got the full picture yet, but it definitely seems that where it's their father's clan against their husbands, they side with their fathers. Yeah. Even though it may mean giving up their sons. And that happens. And we've got life stories collected from women who say, I divorced him. I left my children. <laughs> they can't, you know, because it's so huge, it's so massive to, to do that. If it's in a situation where it's a, a third clan, then they would probably be with their husbands and their sons, I imagine. But we, yeah. Um, so just, I included this just to show it goes back into sort of the history that women have a, a very important symbolic role, and, and we now know it's more than symbolic, in terms of being agitators and supporters of violence. No, I'll stop. Okay. <laughs> I'm sorry. No, 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 that's good. Um, Thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much.